We are speaking on domestic violence. And according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, in 2013, there were 29,779 victims served by Georgia Domestic Violence Services. 27 counties in Georgia have no access to domestic violence services, and another 26 counties have very limited access. Georgia ranks ninth in the nation for the rate at which women are killed by men. In 2014, in Georgia, firearms were involved in 66% of all domestic violence fatalities. In 2014, children witnessed 29% of Georgia intimate partner violence. What is domestic violence? Domestic violence is the willful intimidation, physical assault, battery, sexual assault, and or other abusive behavior as part of a systematic pattern of power and control perpetrated by one intimate partner against another. It includes physical violence, sexual violence, threats, and emotional abuse. The frequency and severity of domestic violence can vary dramatically. Did you know that one in three women and one in four men in the United States have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner? On a typical day, domestic violence hotlines receive approximately 21,000 calls. That's 15 calls per minute. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes. The presence of guns in the home during a domestic violence incident increases the risk of homicide by at least 500%. And 72% of all murder-suicides involved an intimate partner. 94% of the victims of these crimes are females. If you need help, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. How to recognize signs of an abusive partner. Did you know that 90% of abusers do not have criminal records and most of them are law-abiding citizens outside of the home? There is not a typical detectable personality type of an abuser. However, they do often display common characteristics. An abuser often denies the existence or minimizes the seriousness of the violence and its effect on the victim and other family members. An abuser objectifies the victims and often sees them as property or sexual objects. An abuser has low self-esteem and feels powerless and ineffective in the world. He or she may appear successful, but internally they feel inadequate. An abuser externalizes the causes of their behavior they blame their violence on circumstances, such as stress, their partner's behavior, or a bad day. They blame it on alcohol, drugs, or other factors. An abuser may be pleasant and charming between periods of violence, and is often seen as a nice person to others outside of the relationship. Here are some red flags and warning signs of an abuser. They include, but are not limited to, extreme jealousy possessiveness, 
unpredictability, a bad temper, cruelty to animals, verbal abuse, extremely controlling behavior, antiquated beliefs about roles of women and men in relationships, forced sex or disregard of their partner's unwillingness to have sex, sabotage of birth control methods or refusal to honor agreed-upon methods, blaming the victim for anything bad that happens, sabotage or obstruction of the victim's ability to work or attend school. They control all of the finances. They abuse other family members, such as children and pets. There are accusations of the victim flirting with others or having affairs. They often like to control what the victim wears and how they act. Again, if you are in this type of relationship and you need help, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 1-800-799-7233. I hope this segment has been very informative to you. It's time that we stand up and recognize domestic violence. It does not discriminate against race, color, creed, gender. Domestic violence can be in the home with family members, and that's often where it starts. So let's get educated. Let's get the word out. Let's help one another. Let's become advocates. Let's stop domestic violence. Stay tuned for the next part of the show. Up next on Scars Talk with Pastor Monica, we will be speaking with Rhonda A. Thompson, author of Don't Spill the Tea, The Woman's Journey from Abuse to Abundance. Welcome back to Scars Talk with Pastor Monica. And I have with me now a domestic violence advocate. She's an astonishing empowerment speaker, mother, and CEO, and founder of Rose of Sharon Transitional Living for Women, Incorporated. And she's going to share her heart and her journey from abuse to abundance. The startling revelation of her transformation from a woman of the night to an ordained minister, business mogul, and champion of victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse, coupled with meaningful strategies to heal and be free, make her book, Don't Spill the Tea, a must-read for inspiration, power, and a heartfelt journey towards love. And so we're going to welcome with us tonight my sister Rhonda Thompson. She is the author of Don't Bill the Tea, One Woman's Journey from Abuse to Abundance, and she's also a domestic violence overcomer. And so, Rhonda, welcome tonight. We thank you for coming on Scars Talk and be willing to share a little bit of your journey with us. So I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and tell us a little bit about your testimony, how you got to where you are today. And um, we'll go from there. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me, Pastor Monica. Uh, As you said, I'm Rhonda A. Thompson, and 
Um, I have a story to tell. Um, the thing about my story is it's not any different from many young ladies that we come in contact with today. Some of them are just still afraid to spill the tea. That's why the title of the book is Don't Spill the Tea. It's kind of a, a synopsis, or not a synopsis, but a metaphor of living in silence. Um, I have uh, come from a background of child abuse, child sexual assault, intimate partner violence, three suicide attempts. As you said so eloquently, I was a woman of the night, meaning that I um, used my body as an instrument of um, ways to make money. And I, you know, through all of that, I experienced intimate partner violence, which we also know is domestic violence. That's, that's a common, common term. Um, and so I, I endured a lot um, through my early years. And by the time I was 22 is when I found Christ. And from there, he led me on a journey of an abundant life, abundant in love, abundance in forgiveness, abundance in um we we still working on the wealth part, the financial piece. But Amen. <laughs> he, he he told me one time that I was full of wealth, and I knew that he was saying in all areas of my life. And so I am just grateful to be among the living. And um, as you mentioned before, you know I, I I consider myself an overcomer because a um, you have the victim, you have a survivor. And then you have the overcomer. The overcomer is one who took what they survived and they're dedicating their life to going back and helping others to overcome or survive as well. Okay. And, and you said that um, you had attempted how many suicides by the time you were age 13? By the time I was uh, 14 and a half, there was three. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And you said you were uh, uh, abused in the home. Was it by your mother or your father or both? Or what happened there? Yeah, it, it was both. My mom uh, was struggling with, um, well, at the time it was undiagnosed mental illness. And, um, you know, no one knew what, what was going on with her. She had served our country and came home and at some point, things just started to change in, in, in her in her psyche and the behavior was just really erratic and crazy and that's what we called it crazy because we, we didn't know it and even to this day I really don't like to use the term crazy as it, as we refer to people with mental illness we don't use that word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, and I apologize, but that's what what we said back exactly. then because we didn't know. And um, and I did. I asked my mom. My mom is stable and well right now. But I asked her um, to share with me what what she was going through. And um, she did say that when people said she was crazy, it was very offensive and hurtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I definitely don't don't want to say that. But my mom was dealing with undiagnosed mental illness, and then my father was um, battling alcoholism and um, he you know he he was he he was the one who who molested me and this was going on at the same time neither parent knew what the other parent was doing 
because I didn't say anything. I didn't spill the tea until now. Wow. So he was he was in the home. He was no. You okay? Mm -mm. No, I was visiting him. So he, my mom had full custody, and my dad would get his you know his visitation time. Uh, But after this happened, the relationship completely dissolved. How old were you when this was happening? Um, between, I'd say seven and eight. Some family members think it was a little sooner. I I really don't know. So let's just say between six and eight years old. Um, This is what was going on. I really believe that um, I was probably closer to eight when it happened with my father because I was starting to develop little apple seeds mm-hmm. and um, they they weren't really there but you know some little fatty tissue was, was kind of starting to perk up and um, so I, I, I think it was probably closer to the age of eight and so here you are you're, you're you said your mother served in the military Correct. Yeah. So, yes. It's safe to assume she maybe suffered from some sort of PTSD as well. And so, when she came back home, how old were you when when she got out of the military and you noticed the change? Do you know how? I really don't know. I don't. It, it was it was during that same time period. So maybe she was home. I'm assuming a couple of years. Um, she was. Well, no, let's think about it. Okay, so she had me at 18, and around 25, 26 is when she she started to lose her mental health. So it, it had been a little time that had had time. Well, and so um, that's just so much for someone so young to, to have to go through, not with one parent, but you leave you leave home with a mother that's not mentally stable and then you mm-hmm. go to your visitation with your father and then you have to go through that traumatic experience as well yeah. so yeah. That's, that's a lot um wow so was there there any other abuse within the family from any other family members where was the family during this time yeah, my my mom's family was very, 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 very supportive. So I I am I am mixed. I'm Puerto Rican and black. My father's family, um, I didn't speak English. I mean, I did speak Spanish, and I I still don't to this day. But his family, um, I wasn't really close with them at the time. I'm closer now. But my mom's family was extremely supportive. Um, so during her nervous breakdown episode, I would live from house to house, you know, within her family. You know, but she has um, three three brothers that I stayed with, and then my grandparents. And so I would go, you know, maybe a week or two at one uncle's house, a week or two at another one, and week or two or a month at, at another one and, and I just kind of was, was circulated throughout the family and um, that was very that was that was kind of hard you know it, it was great to have the support 
But as a child, you feel like, well, why can't I just be still? Why, you know, why can't I just be with my mom? Why am I going from house to house? Are they getting tired of me? And, um, you know, things like that. So you just, you just, at that age, you don't know what's going on. You just know that you're moving around. And from, from what I heard, there was a period of time that I was in foster care, but I, I don't have any memory of that. So even through all this, you were yet holding on to the secret. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was not spilling the tea. Wow. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Yeah, and and that and I believe that those experiences is what opened the door to the enemy in my life as it related to uh, definitely not knowing what type of boyfriend to have, what type of you know male figure was was good for me although my grandfather was around and he was an excellent example uh somewhere in my mind he was an old man and he did you know the way he treated a woman didn't matter that was how he's supposed to so it didn't click for me that that was how it was supposed to be for me as well and so the the abuse just you know left me with really low self-esteem low self-worth and thought that i needed the validation of a man or a boyfriend. I started dating um, very early, and um, I always dated someone older than me. I think the oldest, I was 15, and my boyfriend was 34 years old. He was 18 years older than me. Mm. So I have, yeah, I know you kind of shocked with that one. <laughs> well, my, my, you know, my ex-husband, my, my her first um, husband, he was 17 years older than me, so... I understand because I, I think that when you're doing that, you're young and you don't understand and you think you know everything, but then you're looking for an actual, I think deep down inside, an actual father figure because I, right. I didn't know who my father was until I was 16 years old. And so even mm-hmm. though my grandfather was a pertinent part of my life, you still long for that father. And so I believe we search out for someone that's older because deep down inside, we still want that father figure. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, now that that particular relationship, um, it, it was unhealthy because of the man's age, but he was, a, he was a good, he was a good guy, and actually, by the time I met him, the suicide attempts had already happened. The, um, you know, I, I, I struggled with alcohol at a very young age as well, and those are some things that's in those in the book don't spill the tea where i talk about how you know i go through these these different masks throughout my life how i was trying to mask the pain alcohol was one of my masks and um sex was another mask and money was another mask and um you know so these these things that we deal with silently is very detrimental and, you know, I encourage any parent, whether you have a boy or a girl, that you start talking early. I have a seven-year-old, and I started talking with him at the age of four about his body parts and about people touching him or harming him or bullying him, um, because that's something I haven't talked about either. I went through a lot of, I had a lot of bullies. You know, I was a little girl with really long hair, and, you know, so I just went through constant battles of fighting and abuse and um by the time i started dating i thought that was that was the norm but then i didn't like how it felt coming 
from a man. So I would leave that relationship and go into another one just like it. It would be the same man in a different body. And I continued to repeat that cycle and until I met the, the gentleman that, that I was speaking about that was um, 18 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And from there, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I still did not meet abusive men. They were just a different type of abuse. They weren't um, physical abuse, but more mental and spiritual and financial and psychological um, abuse continued on throughout my adult life in different various relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am an overcomer, and I do not dwell on those things, but I do share them because I realize, you know, that so many women have these same secrets and wonder why they could continue to pick poor relationships and have bad marriages. It's because we, we haven't dealt with, even, even through being saved. When I got saved, I had another mask. I didn't want people to know where I came from. Why? Because I felt like they would not understand. Because you Christian folks look so squeaky clean. You look like you haven't been through anything. Mm-hmm. So my mask was hiding who I was before I met Christ. It was trying to, you know, hide behind the fact that, oh, I had great grandparents who took care of me. And that was the story I told. But there was so much more that I had to deal with. And I dealt with them secretly with with God, but I was not transparent in my relationships with others, whether it was friendship. You know, I, I, I dealt with abandonment issues because I was abandoned. You know, I, I was abandoned by my mom and my dad, not, not intentionally, but they abandoned me. So in female friendship, if something's not going right, my friend is not calling me back. I can easily feel a trigger of being abandoned. So we have to start talking about these things that we dealt with. If you don't talk about them publicly, that's fine. But you have to talk with someone about them because these things help you to understand why you do the things you do in your adult life right now. Amen. You um, you also talked about uh, the generational curse. How did you mm-hmm. how did you break that curse and become this powerful woman of God that you are today? Amen. Yes, that that was when I learned about generational curses and then I can look back at my parents and bloodline of secrets. I said, "No. They, how, how how does this generational curse thing work?" I'll give you an example. When I was young, I used to run away all the time um, before attempting suicide. Well, one of the suicide attempts was at the the children's, the teenage shelter. And um, my mom took me to this teenage shelter for runaway kids. And instead of really seeing why I'm running away, she's, you know, what what am I dealing with? Um, And that's just because she didn't know. She takes me to a shelter. Well, many, many, many moons later, I have a I have a kid. My oldest now is 25, and I'm having issues with him. And lo and behold, I drive up to the same place that I was in when I was a teenager. Mm. And I sat in front and I said, "The devil is a lie." 
this is a generational curse. What is going on between me and my son, and I talk about some of that and don't spill the tea as well. It's a curse. And I, I decided that I'm not, if I don't break the curse, if I don't start digging up these things and dealing with these issues, even with health, then it's going to continue to pass down to my children and my children's children. So the buck stops here. I did not take my son into that shelter. We went home and I whooped his butt and we had a conversation. And we dealt with what we were dealing with at that time and we we continued to work on the issues as as he as he grew. And I realized that some of the behaviors that he was displaying were generational curses. So I, I instead of um, trying to isolate him, I talked to him. So that's how I was able to see the generational curses in my own life was through my son and realizing that, you know, my father had dealt with some things. Come to find out when I wrote Don't Spill the Tea, his side of the family started talking about it and things started to come up. So it created family discussion that other children in the family had been molested and hurting adults today. And not that it was from my father, but just that it was it was something going around in this side of the family. Then with my side of the family, my mom has mental illness. Well, their mental illness in our family goes way back. It's not like a, a constant, you know, bloodline, but it hits cousins here and there. Mm-hmm. And so even today, I refuse. When I see certain things go you know, a stray on my blood pressure or, or in my blood work. I'm I'm looking at no, I'm not grandma. Amen. The devil is a lie. I what do I need to do to reverse this thing? General generational curses are so real, whether you can see them, whether you believe what I'm saying or not. The enemy is designed to steal, kill and destroy. And if he can destroy the family, yeah. he can destroy our community. If he can destroy our community, he can destroy our neighborhoods, our outside of our neighborhoods, our cities, our country, our nation. So we have to be able to see some of these things that are passed down. A lot of times you go to the doctor and they say, you know, they may do a genetic test on you for cancer. Why? Because it is passed down. But you can, you don't have to accept that. You can say, wait a minute, is that true? Okay, what do I need to do? What measures do I need to take? in order to make sure that I don't develop breast cancer by looking at my diet, looking at my lifestyle, looking at my health, and going to God and saying, Father, you gave me the right to have life abundantly. So I am not willing to accept this generational curse. And and in addition to that, I'm going to do my part. What I'm going to do the part that I can do to make sure this doesn't manifest in my life. That, that is so true. That is profound. And, you know, I'm, I have a family history of um, numerous medical issues on my father's side and my mother's side. And so when I go into the doctor's office, you know, they look at me like, oh, here she comes. She's a walking time bomb. You know, and they'll right. go, oh, well, this runs in your family and that runs in your family. And I say, well, guess what? When it came to me, it ran the other way. It stops here. So you have to know how you have to know how to break it. So I'm breaking those generational curses. That's Amen. They right. will not pass on to my children and my children's children. So right. uh, thank, thank you for that. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays 
running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. And so um, when you were talking earlier, you you mentioned intimate partner violence. And mm-hmm. why is it important to you to use that term when you're describing domestic violence? So I have been in domestic violence most of my life. And the reason why is because the word domestic means home. It is the family unit. So you have mom, dad, cousins, uncles, blah, blah, blah. Intimate partner violence has been, a few years back, has been separated to identify the relationship of that particular area of family violence. Intimate partner violence falls under family violence. It falls under the domestic violence category. It's the exact same thing. It is just, it explains lovers, whether it's a female and male a male and male or a female and female intimate relationship, sexual love, eros, the eros, the erotic love is where the intimate partner violence is separate from any of your blood family. Okay, okay. And um, that's, that's good to know because many of us attribute domestic violence just to the relationship between, you know, the male-female aspect of it all um, because I think we all go to child abuse or you know and, mm-hmm. and then we try to put them in different categories but you are so correct domestic violence meaning you're in that home type situation that is domestic so thank mm-hmm. you for clearing that up for everyone um, yeah. we also um, when we say domestic violence we immediately think about hitting and um, mm-hmm. you say that that's not always the case. And I, I do understand um, mm-hmm. what you mean by that because, you know, I've gone through that as well. But for our audience, explain to everyone what you mean um, when you say that's not always the case. Sure. So um, as I said earlier, that a lot of the um, intimate partner violence abuse that I experienced came from my younger years. Um, but after that, I continue to be in a domestic violence or abusive relationships with men and that that what I mean by that is someone's so 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 let's let's just talk about what domestic violence is or what uh, abuse is abuse is one's ability to control you that is that is the bottom line so you can you can fit that in any category it could be financial if you don't, if you don't um, come home by a certain time, I'm going to make sure your cell phone ain't on or I'm going to cut your cell phone off or you're not going to get the money you need to get your hair done. That's financial abuse. Someone's using money to control you to get you to do what they want. You have spiritual abuse where someone will take the Bible and say, the Bible says that, that um, you, you, a wife is supposed to submit to a husband just to get her. Now you do you do want to share the word of God in a healthy way and, and and explain it to one another and share the word with one another as to what we're supposed to do. I'm not saying 
that, but I'm just giving you an example where a, a partner can use a spiritual aspect to control you and use the word of God to, um, you know, such as, well, you're not supposed to deny your spouse. That's God don't like that, you know, if he's trying to have sex and you don't want to. It is, it, it, it is in the word to a, to a certain degree, but there's a way that you want to have sex with, or intimate relations with your spouse. You don't want to take the word of God and make her feel condemned to sexual behavior. Um, you have mental abuse or psychological abuse where the, the other spouse is attacking your, your character or your, um, you know, calling you fat or uh, manipulating you. There's, there's a term called gaslighting where they'll say something or even physically harm you and then make it seem like it was all you. So, um, you know, something like, you know, saying, well, you're not real smart. And you, and you say, what did you say? And then he'll switch it up and say something like, I was thinking about going to the mark. That's gaslighting. He, he planted the seed yes. of hurt and harm to you, and then you heard it or you've seen it. I had a client where her abuser was hitting her when her back was turned. And all she, all she would do was still a blow, and she would look back, and he would say, what's wrong? <laughs> and it continued to happen until she got a concussion, and now she's disabled. And so that's gaslighting. Um, that is a, but gaslighting is not always physical. It, it can be mental as well, psychological, you know, making you feel like you're, you're super ugly. Nobody's going to want you. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are so many forms of domestic abuse, and I do urge people to just Google types of domestic abuse. There's you know, so many, I can't say them all on this call, but it's not always physical. And let me say, it will not be physical before any of the other things happen. Those other things would have happened before it got physical. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm just getting into a relationship with you or I'm in a loving relationship with you and all is well, everything is peaches and cream, and then I just hit you, you're not going to stay. Right. You're not going to stay. So I need to isolate you. I need to get you completely dependent on me. And domestic abuse is not always a male and female. I'm not sure how this how great the statistics are because men don't report it, but it says that 85% of women are victims and 15% uh, are men. But we know men don't report it as often, so right. those numbers could be a little screwed. Right. So, and you say that there are, are three words um, that come to mind when you're discussing domestic violence. It's a victim, survivor, or overcomer. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about that? Sure. And, and, and you know what? That can fall with any category. So a, a victim is someone who was harmed or they dealt with a chronic illness. Um, then they survived. They lived through it. They were able to see another day. They, you know, that chapter of their life is closed. But the overcomer is the one who takes pride in going to make sure that someone else don't suffer like they did and help them out of that situation. You may be, I, I call myself a voice for the voiceless. And so I speak for those who are afraid to speak or who no longer can speak. So that is 
an overcomer or someone who starts an organization or they um, advocate, they go to the state's capital and, and go to all the lawmakers and try to get laws and bills passed to help victim, um, victim services. So those are overcomers. Those are the, the, that's the difference between a survivor and overcomer. Okay, awesome. So our goal is to all be overcomers. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And so um, I'm, I was reading, and you also worked at uh, a crisis uh, center at uh, Sojourn of Truth as a bodyguard. <laughs> so can you tell our audience what was going through your mind when you actually rescued uh, that mother there? and her three children from the domestic violence situation that they were in. Absolutely. So so th- there was two positions. I worked at Sojourner Truth on a crisis line, and this is where I started my journey in the work after my own survivorship. I did work as a female bodyguard for an organization called Brothers Against Domestic Violence. Both of these organizations are in Wisconsin. And this particular woman, um, she had called the shelter, and um, I was young. You know, I was really in my in my 20s or early to mid-20s, and she and her three children needed shelter to get away from an abuser. And all the shelters in our city was full. Shelters for domestic violence victims and their children are very limited. We, I mean, that's a nationwide problem. And so I found a shelter in Racine, Wisconsin, which was about 45 minutes to an hour away um, and on a bus. And so I decided when I ended my shift to go pick her and her children up, take them to Greyhound, bought them bus tickets, and sent them on their way. That night I was driving home. That's when the Lord laid it on my heart that there was more that I should do. And that's when um, that particular night I heard of Rose and Sharon. And I said, no, <laughs> I can't do that. I mean, like just the fear of going to where she was, anything can happen. No one knew where I was was enough to scare me off. Um, but Rose of Sharon was, was birthed in that moment. And Sharon is a desert. And the Bible says that he is the Rose of Sharon. And those two, being the Rose of Sharon, being a rose in the desert place, Bruised but not broken was the the total um, epitome of what these women needed. And yet I was the one called to do it by helping someone else. That was that was the vision that I got. And that was uh, in 98, 1998. I did not incorporate until 2012. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> But the seed was planted. <laughs> yes, it was. Wow. So um, when did you become um, an ordained minister? Uh, that was in about 2005, I believe. Yes, I, um, my church at home, uh, Christian Faith Fellowship Church, where Bishop Daryl Lynn Hines was the pastor. <laughs> uh, we had to go through, you know, minister, minister of excellence was our class, and it was it was a eighteen month was it eighteen month eighteen eighteen or twelve month course. And at the end, we were we were originally told that he was not ordaining anybody else, and uh, 
And then at the end, he decided that, yes, he was going to ordain us. So we were like, oh, my goodness. You know, like it was huge. It was huge. Um, Great accomplishment. You know, I don't necessarily speak about it much because I... I just live what I, I just live my life. I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, go around speaking about it. I just do what I'm supposed to do or what I believe I'm supposed to do. But that was a great time in my life. (laughs) I love the quote by Dr. Melva Henderson. The plan of God can never be fulfilled without kingdom women. And so talk to me about how the Lord led you to her to write the forward for your book. Oh, my goodness. I love uh, Dr. Henderson. She was actually my, um, her and her husband, Pastor Skip, were my teacher at Christian Faith. They were the facilitators for um, our Minister of Excellence class. And since then, um, she start, her, and, her and her husband started their own church, and I went on to be with them. And we we have a really amazing relationship even though we are 800 miles away she is um a great leader i'm glad you asked about her people um love pastor melva because she is so transparent you know she shared her story of of domestic violence in this book for the very first time um publicly and so i was very honored that she trusted me enough with her information to share it with women in hopes that they will see that, you know, I mean, she's, she's really, really a successful minister. She, she's a pastor full-time, and um, she teaches, and she teaches people discipleship. She teaches them not just to come and be a member, but she teaches them to grow and go on and, and go out. The Bible says to go out, be there for, out. So she's a sender. She trains and sends. That's that's the model. Her church is, um, Lord, I'm about to tell you my church here, but it's World Outreach and Bible Training Center. And so their their job is to train people and send them, and they do it so well. They have a, a church in Arizona now um, that is uh, Maricopa, a World Outreach and Bible Training Center, Maricopa, and. Other people are training and growing and developing ministries, and uh, she calls she calls me one of her girls, and and that just means that uh, she said we're in covenant together for life. She will always train me, she will always oversee me, and she will always impart wisdom into my life. Amen. That that's beautiful, and and it's safe to say that she's your she's your mentor, and so for you know for other young people out there that. Um, are coming from dysfunction, where where would a, a young person find a mentor, you know, like that? You know, what if they don't know anything about the church or they've never been introduced mm-hmm. to the church or they've just been going from foster home to foster home, no family? Where can we have them turn to for a mentor that can actually help them to get through this, this time and this period in their life? Well, I'm actually praying for a mentee. Um, it is time that, that I start to develop and raise women up to be overcomers as well. Um, I'm, I'm available at uh, com, but I would say that they should first seek God and ask him 
to lead someone to them because a mentorship is is an organic relationship that is ordained by God because your mentor will have something in you, in them, that you need. And they they will organically feed you. It won't be a forced effort. It will be something that is just natural. And they they will carry you in their heart. And so I um, I believe that asking God for direction on that, if you don't um, know of a church uh, or, you know, I am um, in partnership with another organization called Little Leading, Little Leading Ladies, where um, we mentor young ladies. And so um, I can definitely put them in contact with, with that organizer, uh, Dr. Alexis Branch, and she will match them with a mentor based on, you know, their application and seeing, you know, what similarities to, to go with them. But but I, I am looking for my mini-me. I really am. I mean, I, I am parting to my boys all the time, but I am... You know, I am called to someone outside of them as well. I'm called to many someone, but I am looking for someone that I can that I can help gird up as well. So if you're looking for a mentor, pray and ask God and, you know, send me an email and we'll see where it goes. Amen. And I said young, but, you know, that could be for anyone that's seeking That could be mentor. for anyone. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's not an age thing. You know, um, I've learned, you know, that, that, shoot, the young people now, if they're raised up the right way, they they can help the older ones. And, and, and women of wisdom and, and seasoned ages have to be open to, because God is doing a new thing. You know, it ain't about the age thing no more. It's about, you know, taking someone to the next level. As a matter of fact, most of the women that have contacted me to mentor them in one capacity or the other have been older than me. So I do have women that I share wisdom with and, you know, I, I help coach along the way. What I'm looking for is, is someone that I can help really from, from the foundation, you know, of her, her teenage to adult life. Again, um, you can reach out to Rhonda at RhondaAThompson.com. That's correct? Yep. Okay, okay. And so um, gonna be, I'm going to be um, ending the interview here pretty soon, but you know, it's, it's, it's so good I don't want to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went over our time. <laughs> but it, it's okay, it's okay. Um, I wanted you mentioned your your boys earlier, your your two sons, and so I wanted to uh, ask you, you know, how did how did they react to your transparency? You know, of being, uh, you know, uh, going through everything you did at an early age, or promiscuity, the the sexual abuse, yeah. the lady yeah. of the night, to to get to where you are. You know, sometimes when when you spill the tea then things come to surface, and so then, you know, they have to deal with, oh, your mother used to be this or your mother that, and you know how, how, how children are or people are in general, but how have they dealt with all of this? You know what, my, um, my oldest son definitely uh, can understand things like this a little bit more, and he, he, he's fine with it. He sees the wisdom that um, 
you know, he was there all the time and he sees the, the change in me. And, you know, so he asked me life experiences and questions and, and I'm totally transparent with him. My seven-year-old, um, he knows that I am a survivor of domestic violence. And um, I can't remember, I don't know if I was doing a radio interview or something and I said, I'm a survivor. No, he saw a video. It was a video. And um, he, he heard me talk about domestic violence. So I talked to him. Even though he's young, I share with him what domestic violence is, what it looks like. And um, I am not going to let my children walk in darkness and not be abreast to what's going on in our society. And um, I have no fear about that. And they are totally open to the information. You know, um, I started with my two-year, well, I started with my seven-year-old at the age of two teaching him affirmations. And for five years, he has added, between he and I, added affirmations to his life. Does he know what they mean yet? No. But at some point, he's going to know who he is. So I'm, I'm changing that cycle of some of the things that I've been through by how, how I raised him. Now, for my 25-year-old who got the blunt of it when he was growing up, we just have candid conversation. And it's, you know... There's no judgment. You know, he doesn't say, ooh, mom, oh, wow. You know, like, no, it's just we, we talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It is. And then that's how you're able to break those generational curses as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to tell everyone how they can get your, your, your book. Again, it's... Um, don't spill the tea. One woman's journey from abuse to abundance, and you can tell everyone where they can purchase that book. Sure, you can get a signed copy at RhondaAThompson.com. You can go to Barnes and Noble or Books a Million. You can also go on Amazon.com, but right now Amazon has some weird glitch in their system, and it's I'm trying to tell people to use some of the other retailers because they're saying that it's going to take a month <laughs> to get your book and that's not true. I don't know why. My publisher has been back and forth with them trying to fix that. Um, so I'm just kind of leading people to go to uh, Barnes & Noble's Books A Million or RhondaAThompson.com. Okay. And and you're also, if you're in Georgia, you're having a, a book signing, correct? Is that open to the public? Yes, yes. It is um, this Saturday. It's called Meet the Author, and I was asked to be one of the featured authors of this event, and we are um, going to be signing books, talking about the story, and going through all that good stuff on Saturday. So it'll be a great time to come out and meet and uh, chit-chat and get your signed copy. To seeing you there. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, should we be looking for a film to come out anytime soon? Something about <laughs> the last time? Oh my gosh, yes. Last time is, it's, it's actually already out and they are, um, I was a part of the, um, the production and, and shooting for that 
film. It is a domestic violence film, and it is going to be on, oh, what channel? I think it's, is it called, uh, oh, Lord, Pastor Monica, you don't know what channel it is, but it, it's coming out September 5th. It's going to be on a cable channel. Okay. Um, it, it's one of the newer um it's one of the newer uh, cable channels. I can't even think of the name. I think it's Black Off. It's, um, so it's something like TV not, One, but... Not TV, it's something like that. It's not TV One, it's not centric. It, it, I, I'm sorry, y'all, please forgive me. The last time, you go to, go to the last time movie on Facebook. You will find it there. Great movie. Okay, so if if everyone goes to the last time movie on Facebook, it mm-hmm. will it will tell exactly yeah. where it's going to be. Okay, girl, yeah. you gotta you gotta be prepared for this. We need to follow you, and we need to follow this wherever it is. <laughs> it, it is it is not my movie. I was a part of the of of the. The cast, yeah, and um, so yeah, but but I I didn't play a real big big part in it, but I'm in there. <laughs> Any part is a big part. <laughs> That's a scene. I told you, like, I don't. I, I told you, I don't. Think, I just think it's my duty. I don't take anything from you know my my accomplishments. But thank you for even bringing that up. Thank you so much for, for knowing about that. <laughs> You're welcome. So, again, to to purchase the book, you can. She would prefer you go to Books a Million, um, Barnes and Nobles. The name of the book again is. Um, oh my gosh! Here I go. Uh-huh. <laughs> Don't spill the tea, honey. Don't spill it. Don't <laughs> spill the tea. One woman's journey from abuse to abundance. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. And Rhonda is spelled R H. O-N-D-A. So that's RhondaAThompson.com. And I would just like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us and educate us on domestic violence tonight, sharing your testimony with us, being transparent, and sharing those uh, those difficult times and stages in your life. But You've gone on to be a testimony to anyone out there that that may be stuck in a situation right now. You know, there may be someone out there that's, you know, strung out on drugs or alcohol right now that's in the, the middle of a domestic violence situation at home or with a partner, and you are a, a prime example of, of giving someone hope how you can go from from a stage of brokenness to completeness in God, you know, that, that's, that's beautiful, from brokenness to completeness. And so I just want to thank you for being on the show tonight. We look forward to working with you in the future and, and possibly bringing you back on when you get these new endeavors that are going on, so these new movie <laughs> deals and <laughs> these new projects that will be coming on. We'd be happy to have you back on the show and, and highlight that at that time as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being willing to share, uh, or allowing me to share my story and, and educating um, your listeners on domestic violence. Amen. 
So again, we thank you when you have been listening to Pastor Monica on Scars Talk with our exceptional guest, our sister Rhonda A. Thompson. Um, we were highlighting domestic violence and her book, Don't Spill the Tea, One Woman's Journey from Abuse to Abundance. Stay tuned for the end of the show. You are tuned back in to Scars Talk with Pastor Monica. And we have been talking about domestic violence tonight. And in this last segment, we're going to answer some questions that we all have asked regarding victims. Why don't they just leave? Why do they stay in that abusive relationship? When it's a viable option, it's best for the victims to do what they can to escape their abusers. However, this is not the case in all situations. Abusers repeatedly go to extremes to prevent their victims from leaving. In fact, leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a domestic violence victim. There were some studies that were conducted, and in some interviews with men who have killed their wives, they said that threats of separation by their partner or actually separations were often the most precipitating events that led to the actual murder. A victim's reason for staying with their abusers are extremely complex and in most cases they're based on the reality that their abuser will follow through with their threats to kill them or their threats to keep them trapped. The abuser will hurt them or kill them they will hurt them or they will kill the kids. They will win custody over the children. They're going to kill the pets. They're going to kill family. They're going to ruin the victim financially. They're going to ruin their reputation. And so the list goes on and on and on. The victim in violent relationship knows their abuser best and they fully know the extent to which they will go to to make sure they can have and maintain control over the victim. The victim literally may not be able to safely escape or to protect those that they love, their children, etc. A recent study of intimate partner homicides found 20% of homicide victims were not the domestic violence victims themselves, but they were family members, they were friends, neighbors, persons who intervened, law enforcement responders, or just innocent bystanders. There are additional barriers to escaping of violent relationships. They include but are not limited to Fear that the abuser's actions will become more violent and may become lethal if the victim leaves. Unsupportive friends and family. Knowledge of the difficulties of single parenting and reduced financial circumstances. The victim feels that the relationship is a mix of good times, love, and hopes that along with the manipulation and intimidation and fear that things will get better. The victim's lack of knowledge or access to safety and support. They don't know where to go. They have fear of losing custody of their children if they leave or divorce their abusers. And they fear the abuser will hurt or kill them or their children. They lack the support to take care of themselves or their children financially if they leave. 
They don't have anywhere to go. They have no friends, no family, no help, no money. You know, they can't go to a hotel or shelter. They don't know of any programs. And if they do find programs, the programs are full or limited. They fear that they're going to become homeless, and that's not an option for them. Their religious or cultural beliefs and practices may not support a divorce or may dictate that they stay in that relationship no matter what, and now they're feeling trapped in that relationship. They believe that two-parent households are better for their children despite what they're going through with the abuse. They fear being ostracized by their families and friends. They also fear that they're going to be talked about and, and ridiculed because they've deserted their, their children and their family. There's reinforcement from the clergy and the secular counselors of saving a couple's relationship at all costs, rather than stepping in and helping them to stop the violence. There's a lack of support to the victims by the police officers and law enforcement, and they treat violence as a domestic ex dispute instead of a crime where one person is physically attacking another. Often victims of abuse are arrested and charged by law enforcement officers even if they are only defending themselves against the one who is actually doing the battering. They're reluctant by their prosecutors to prosecute cases and so sometimes they may convince the abuser to stop and give them a lesser charge and so this further endangers the victims. Despite the issuing of a restraining order, there is little to prevent a released abuser from returning to the home and repeating the abuse or actually killing the victim. Despite greater public awareness and the increased availability of housing for victims fleeing from their violent partners, there are still not enough shelters to keep the victims safe. Some religious and cultural practices stress that divorce is forbidden. Isolation from friends and family, either by the jealous or possessive abuser or because they feel ashamed of the abuse and then they try to hide the signs of it from the outside world. The isolation contributes to a sense that there is nowhere to turn. Inconsistency of abuse during nonviolent phases so the abuser may fulfill the victim's dreams of romantic love or buying them things and making them feel needed and wanted. And after this happens, the victim may also rationalize the abuser's abuse. And they will say that they're a good person, that really deep down inside, they're not bad. Society teaches women to believe that their identities and feelings of self-worth are contingent upon getting and keeping a man. And these are just a few of the reasons why people stay in abusive relationships. Again, these are just a few of the reasons that people stay in abusive relationships. And so if you are in an abusive relationship and you are truly looking for and seeking help, you can call anonymously to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 1-800-799-7233. 
I hope that you all have enjoyed this segment of Scars Talk with Pastor Monica as we've been discussing domestic violence. Educating in a short time of what it looks like to be with an abuser, why the victims remain in the relationship, where you can go to receive help if you feel that you are in an abusive relationship, also, we've had an exceptional guest tonight, Sister Rhonda A. Thompson. She is a domestic violence overcomer. She is also a domestic violence advocate here in the state of Georgia. She left some vital information on how to reach out to her if you are seeking help as well. This has been Scars Talk with Pastor Monica K. Harris. Join us again next month for another featured segment with some more exceptional and exciting guests. And remember, this is the place where scars turn to stars. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, be safe and be blessed.